The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Ladies, uh, save the date. Next week you can begin to register. Jenny Allen, a young lady who is seeking to change a next generation for the Savior, will be here uh, TBC October 2nd and 3rd. First come, first serve on registration. So uh, save the date. It's a great time to uh, get away with, uh, not get away, but come here with uh, other ladies. It's a great 4th of July weekend. Jim, why don't you roll that and I'll comment on it after. So Jesus said to those who had come to believe in him, If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But they answered, We are the descendants of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. So how can you say we will become free? You see, they answered Jesus in the same way we might. I mean, we're Americans, right? We live in the land of the free. We sing songs about it. We get together and have parties and fireworks, all to celebrate our nation's freedom. But Jesus was speaking of a different kind of freedom, a freedom that can only be found in Him. He answered them, This is the truth. Everyone who chooses a life of sin isn't free. They are a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son or a daughter, they belong forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, there are two types of freedom. The freedom we enjoy as a nation that many people have sacrificed for for many years, and we're grateful for that. Like you, I'm disappointed in the number of things that have happened in recent weeks, and I pray that our nation will be a nation that stands for truth and stands for right, that we as believers will do that regardless of the mores of a society we live in. Recognize that Jesus has given us a firm word, a secure word, and our trust is in him, our hope is in him, and we do not fret because of him. Amen? There's also the freedom we enjoy in him, and that's the most important freedom we have. There are many people around the world who don't enjoy the freedom we have, who serve in uh, or in nations that don't have freedom, and we intercede on behalf of our fellow believers there and pray that indeed Christ will be honored in their lives as they live for him. Waiting, Acts chapter 24. After five days, verse 1, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So Tertullus is the attorney, Felix is the governor, Paul is the accused, the elders, the Sadducees are the ones who bring him for charges. And then I want you to drop all the way down to verse 27. Last verse in this chapter, but after two years had passed, after two years had passed, Paul has been under arrest now for two years. After two years of waiting, Felix was succeeded by Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Two years of waiting, not two hours, not two days, not two weeks, not two months, but two years of waiting while imprisoned. Father, as we look at this topic, we recognize for many of us, it's very difficult to wait. But sometimes that's what you call us to do. I pray that you'll teach us this morning from your word and through this example in Jesus' name. Amen. I confess in the beginning I struggle with impatience. So we begin this sermon. I struggle with impatience. I am not good about waiting. 
It is not a strong suit of mine, never has been, and I pray that God has matured me in some ways. I'm not as impatient as I used to be, but I don't like to wait. I-35 on a Friday afternoon drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Being put on a hold on a telephone, I'd rather have a root canal before that happens. And this past March, we were in Kenya uh, teaching for Alarm in Kenya, then later in Rwanda at our sister church. And uh, before we left on that trip, we brought, bought, bought Bev bought Bev a brand new laptop. And uh, she needed it. She had a, a, a deadline. She had to have uh, this thing into an editor for the book that she's written. And uh, it was time to complete that. And we figured there'd be enough room, uh, enough time in the hotel for her to complete what she needed to complete to get to the editor. So on this particular night, we're three days into the trip. On this night, we left our hotel room. We're kind of in a remote area, Kenya, about 40 miles outside of Nairobi in the middle of nowhere. So we we left the room. We went to uh, dinner. Then we went to a meeting. And nobody entered our room. Nobody came out of our room. When we left, the computer was working. It was plugged in. Everything was fine. This is a brand new, just out of the box, six days before computer that we bought here. We left the room, came back, and we came back, the screen was green. So I thought, well, maybe they had a little power issue or something. So we reboot the computer, and when the computer comes back, it's just green. So I get online on my phone, which was not an easy thing to do there. There's no internet, so you're using whatever is LTE or 3G or 1G, whatever they had there. And uh, you read about what to do. I tried everything it said for us to do with this brand new, just out of the box computer, and nothing worked. We still have a green screen. So I called the service center. I got a person I could barely understand. So I put it on speakerphone so Bev can help me hear what's going on. I explained the situation. I've got this brand new, just out of the box computer I bought six days ago back in America. I'm currently in Africa, in Kenya, and every, time, every minute I talk to you, it's costing me 50 cents. Do you understand me, sir? Uh, yes, 50 cents per minute is what it's going to cost me to talk to you. And so I'm thinking, maybe we get this thing fixed real quick. I told him the computer was dead. So he said, sir, the first thing I need are numbers from the back of your computer. Well, it's 1030 at night in a hotel in Africa. Have you ever been to hotels in Africa? The the lights, it's kind of like those of you, by the way, all these lights will be changed this week, I'm told. But uh, it's it's kind of like sitting in the dark. Uh, They have been changed, actually, a lot of them. But anyway, it's like sitting in the dark. So I get my phone. I get that flashlight app out. And and we're we're looking at the numbers. And we're on the speakerphone phone going numbers back and forth. And the guy finally gets a number. He said, sir, uh, if you wait a few minutes, I'll come back and tell you what's going on. So I wait. And I wait at 50 cents a minute. I'm waiting and waiting. Finally, what seems like an eternity, which probably only about five or six minutes, he comes back on. And I did understand his words. We had pulled up a code on this thing. It's all we could get. Code came up on the computer. He said two words, and I can understand them both. Not good. And I'm thinking, this is a nightmare. I've got a brand new out-of-the-box computer. Uh, we bought it back there. We're now here. Bev has a deadline. Uh, and, 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 and whatever not good is, is not going to turn out well. So, and I'm on hold at 50 cents a minute, and my sanctification is being tested. <laughs> I'm speaking at a pastor's conference of pastors and wives. And then so he said, uh, sir, I'm going to have to give you to one of our tech people. And I decided I'm just going to time this and see how long it is. So I get my phone out, put the timer on. 18 minutes later, I hear the voice of a gentleman on the other end. 
uh, sir, I am the tech person, but before we talk about it, uh, I must make you understand you did not purchase insurance with this machine, so it's going to cost you money to talk to me. My first thoughts were not praise Jesus. <laughs> My first thoughts were, I wonder what country you're in, because I'm going to come looking for you wherever you might be. And I explained to him, this is a just-out-of-the-box computer. We bought it six days ago. I've been waiting for you to talk to me for 18 minutes. You want to charge me money to do it? The thing had even broken in. I mean, what, what am I supposed to do here? And by the way, you're costing me 50 cents a minute just to talk to you. But I mentioned it's costing me 50 cents a minute. I mentioned that? And so, so we're on the other line. This guy uh, was very nice, and, and he tried to do something. It didn't work. And so he said, I'm going to pass you on to my supervisor. Or no, he said, let me talk to my supervisor. I said, no, no, let me talk to your supervisor. And so I waited another seven minutes because now I'm timing it on my phone. And uh, this brand-new, out-of-the-box computer, the guy says, uh, sir, we can't do anything for you. Uh, the only thing we can have you do right now is to, and I, I wrote it down in my, in my journal. It, he, he said, sir, I need you to take the hard drive out. <laughs> Me? <laughs> I want to say, you know, I got two things in my toolbox. Everybody in my church knows this. What are, what's in my toolbox? <laughs> Duct tape and WD-40. I'm in the middle of Africa in a dark hotel room. Where am I? It's 1030 at night. Where am I supposed to find pliers? He said, I need a screwdriver and pliers. Bev and I just cracked up laughing, both of us laughing right there. Long story short, an hour and a half later at 50 cents a minute, my might add, hour and a half of waiting, just waiting, praising Jesus and thanking him for this opportunity. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm, we, we finished that and we, the guy said, there's nothing I can do, you got to bring it back when you get home and... Now I think Bev wants to know what country this guy is in at this point in time. We just waited and waited and waited. Do you ever wait like that? Maybe it's waiting for the job interview, waiting for the acceptance letter, waiting for the loan to come through, waiting for the wedding day, waiting to get pregnant, waiting for the baby to come, waiting for the adoption papers to go through, waiting for the test results, waiting for your spouse to get ready for church this morning waiting for your prayers to be answered, just waiting, just waiting. Remember Dr. Philip Brooks? I've used that illustration. It seems like a hundred times over the 30 years. Dr. Philip Brooks, great preacher in New England of yesteryear back in the 1800s. He's pacing back and forth in the living room of his parsonage. One of his parishioners goes by. He states to the screen door, Dr. Brooks, what's the trouble? And he responded, the trouble is I'm in a hurry, but God is not. You ever feel that way? It's like, God, the, the heavens, are, just, just speak to us, God. We're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. Not two hours, not two days, not two weeks, not two months, but two years, Paul is waiting. Seems to be a common theme in the scriptures. I went back and just thought through in my mind, here's Abraham. He and Sarah waited until he was 100 years old to have their baby. God said, Wait. Here's Moses, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the desert, just waiting. Here's Joseph, who's in prison because Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, and he's in prison from two to four years. We're not sure exactly how long, but minimum of two years, maximum four years if you do the chronology. Here's the nation of Israel waiting for Messiah to come for thousands of years, and here's the church waiting for Jesus to come back, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. 
that when I look at the unfolding of the last several chapters in the book of Acts, I, I think what God is doing here, what the Holy Spirit is doing through the inspiration of his word, he, he has made a promise to Paul. Here's the promise. It's found in Acts 23, 11, that the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you'll testify me in Rome. So God has given a promise to Paul. You're going to make it through to, to Rome in safe passage and the kingdom is going to continue to expand. Paul, you're going to keep moving. But the, the church has unfinished business. The kingdom will grow. It goes back to Acts 1-8, which we said is a key verse in the whole book. Go back and circle it in your Bibles if you haven't done that already. Acts 1-8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And this is a playing out. It's a teasing out. It's an unfurling of what's happening. And so now what we see is Paul is steadily moving to Rome, moving to Rome, moving to Rome. But now God says, Wait. Not for two hours, not for two weeks, not for two months, but for two years. Wait. Imprisoned. Wait. And when I read this section, at the 30,000 foot level, it's the movement to Rome, but on the daily level, it's Paul being in prison for something he didn't do. In fact, there are charges against Paul. Three charges are brought against Paul. The first charge is that Paul is an insurrectionist. He's an insurrectionist. By the way, this is where Paul was in prison. This is currently uh, Caesarea Maritina, the Caesarea by the sea. Uh, these are the modern-day ruins. This is a picture we, uh, or a place we saw just last month. This is what it looked like in Paul's day. Here's uh, uh, what it would have looked like and where he would have been imprisoned. Uh, the guy he was coming before is Felix, who's a, I'm sorry, yeah, Felix, who's a governor. Tactus is a historian. Instead of Felix, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. What does that mean? Well, Felix is the first Roman slave to become a governor in Roman history, period. And so he's a slave. But now he, he, he's put in a position of leadership. So he exercised his role as governor with cruelty and lust. And, and with the power of a king and the spirit of a slave. His wife was a lady named Drusilla. With a name like Drusilla, you know she's going to be a problem, and she was. She left her first husband to go to Felix, who ended up being her, his third wife. I mean, they both had a lust for ambition, a lust for power, and they were not good people, much less good rulers. And Paul was left in their care. He's left in their care. And, and so there are three charges against Paul. The first one is he's an insurrectionist. He's insurrectionist. Tertullus, the lawyer, steps up and he flatters the governor. Look at verse 2. Since we, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reformed to being carried in the nation, we acknowledge in every way and everywhere most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. He, he's buttering this guy up. He's flattering. He's saying what a great ruler he is. But the reality of it, he was a cruel man hated by many. It, it said he crucified more in Rome than almost any governor that was there. If you stood up against him, you met with your death. Look at verse 5. We have found this man, referring to Paul, a real pest. If you have NIV, troublemaker. The, the actual word in the Greek language is plague. We have found this guy a plague, a troublemaker, a pest. He's an insect. He's causing problems. He's infecting other people. He, he stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, you talk about a hyperbole and exaggeration. He's saying this guy is causing problems everywhere in the whole world. Felix, this guy standing in front of you right now is the troublemaker of all troublemakers. He's a pest. He's a plague. He's an insect. Felix, you've got to be done with him. 
By the way, note, there's no specific, it's a grossly exaggerate, it's a gross exaggeration, and, and there's no specific given by Felix at that, or given by Tertullus at this time, the lawyer, no specific instance named. None. As is the case throughout Acts, when Christianity is the issue in a Roman court, the charge cannot be proven. I believe the Holy Spirit records these trials for us in part to refute the charge that Christians were political revolutionaries. They were not. The believers were not political revolutionaries. They were those who carried the gospel everywhere, and the opposition to the gospels would cause the problem. And Paul's going to bear that out in a second. So in the first portion of verse 5, if you write in your Bibles, number one, he's a pest causing dissension. That is, he's an insurrectionist. Number two, the second half of verse 5. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The word ringleader is a military term. He, he stands in rank above everybody else of the Nazarenes. Nazarenes is a derisive, ter- der- derisive term here. Term here. It, it, it's like when Jesus came up and the question was asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And, and it's a term of derision here. Hey, he's a ringleader. He's the mob leader. He's the guy that stands above everybody else among the Nazarenes, among the Bubbas among the backcountry people. He's really a nobody leading a bunch of nobodies, but he's causing a lot of problems. Number one, he's an insurrectionist. Number two, he's a cult leader. He's leading the people in this cult. And number three, he has desecrated the temple. He's a desecrator of the temple. Look at verse six. He even tried to desecrate the temple and we arrested him. We arrested him. I mean, this guy is trouble. This Paul guy, wherever he goes, he instigates problems. He, he, he causes people to be in dissension. He desecrated our temple. He leads a cult. If you've ever been falsely accused of saying or doing something, you can imagine how Paul feels right now. I mean, he's being falsely accused. We're going to see in a second. He stands up to these charges and says, I, I haven't done any of this stuff. But to be falsely accused, to stand before people and they say, ha, he's the one, she's the one. Look at what he did. Listen to what she said. And it's not true. It's pretty amazing to watch Paul's response. Most of us want to stand up and we'd want to scream out and lash out, but Paul just very calmly and cheerfully answers the questions. The first thing he says, I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not an insurrectionist. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you've been judged to this nation. He says, you know what's been happening in this nation. You've been here a while. I cheerfully make my defense. Look at what he says. I mean, he's not lashing out. He's just calmly stating the facts. By the way, the word defense here, the end of verse 10 is an interesting word. It's the Greek word apologia. We get the word apologetics from it. It means to defend the faith. Paul's given a defense. His first defense is, I'm not a resurrectionist. Look at verse 11. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went to Jerusalem to do what? To worship. He he says, I I wasn't there long enough to do anything. I've been under your control for four or five days in Caesarea. I I, 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 I just came here 12 days ago. There wasn't time enough to do it. By the way, I didn't come for that reason. Anyway, I came to worship. 
I've been in Jerusalem in a long time. I came here to be a worshiper. Look at verse 12. And neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Paul came to bring an offering to the poor and he came to worship God. He was not the instigator of riots. He was the victim of a riot. And so he says, I haven't been here long enough, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. By the way, under Roman law, if you accuse somebody of something that wasn't true, you went to jail. And Paul says, where's the evidence? Check the security logs. Call the police. See if they responded to disturbing the peace call that I instigated, that I was the one responsible for. It's not there, I promise you. I am not an insurrectionist. Secondly, Paul says, uh, not only am I not an insurrectionist, Christianity is not a cult. So the problem here is a theological. By the way, the trial should have stopped right there. Uh, under Roman law, theology didn't matter. I, I mean, and Paul's going to argue about the theological stuff next, whether or not Christianity is a cult and whether or not the temple is desecrated. If Felix would have uh, done what he was supposed to, he'd have stopped the trial right there. The only thing he had jurisdiction over was the first point, whether or not Paul was an insurrection against Roman law. And because he's not, it should have stopped right there. But he continues to listen to Paul. He continues to let the trial go on. He should have declared him innocent. They should have gone on their way. But then he says, not only am I not an insurrection, the second charge is wrong as well. Christianity is not a cult. Picking up in verse 14. This I admit to you, according to the way, by the way, they call him a father Nazarene, he calls it the way, which they call a sect. I do serve the God of our fathers. Paul says, hey, I'm still following the same God. Jehovah's a God, I'm still following him. Not only that, I believe everything in accordance with the law and the prophets. He says, I believe the entire word of God in the Old Testament. The majority of the people accusing Paul were Sadducees. Sadducees had two problems. Number one, they only believed in the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the prophets. So Paul is kind of throwing this in their face and saying, you know what, here's the reality. I believe in the entire Old Testament scripture. These guys accuse me. They didn't even buy it all. Secondly, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So look at where Paul goes in verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Paul says, I want you to know, and by the way, he's mainstream Jewish theology here because the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. He's saying, by the way, Christianity is not a cult. It's a fulfillment that everything God prophesied of through the law and through the prophets. Today, if a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus, they, they call themselves either Messianic Jew or completed Jew. Messianic Jew, meaning they follow Jesus as the Messiah. Completed Jew means Jesus is the completion of everything that the Old Testament prophesied about. They are complete in Christ. They see all of the scriptures pointing to Jesus just as we do. Jesus came as the Messiah. Paul says the real problem here is the resurrection. In fact, he would, he would uh, even speak more about that in verse 21. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out in the temple for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you say, he said the real issue here is a theological issue. I believe in the resurrection. They don't. That's the problem. I believe in the resurrection and they don't. Let's get down to brass tacks. It's not about being insurrectionist. It's not about desecrating the temple either. 
It's really about the resurrection. By the way, the resurrection is still the watershed event of human history. The resurrection still separates Christianity from every other world religion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. If Jesus is still in a grave in Jerusalem, we're wasting our time here. If Jesus is still dead, Christianity is a hoax and we believe a lie. But if Jesus is alive, if Jesus rose out of that tomb, everything's changed. And everything he said is true. And when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. If those were, if the resurrection is true, then those words are true, and we should be evangelists who are telling everyone about the good news that Jesus is the way, the only way to the Father. Amen? And Paul says, let's be honest. Christianity is not a cult, it's a fulfillment. I still worship the same God. And then he concludes his argument by talking about the third charge. I didn't desecrate the temple. He said, in fact, when I went in, look at verse 3. After several years, I came bringing an offering to, to, to the poor to present offerings. In fact, I was purified when I went in the temple. Verse 18, when they found me, I had been purified. He went through the rites of purification. There was no crowd. There was no uproar. But, verse 18, there were certain Jews who came from Asia and they, they, they brought, uh, the, who ought to have been here to, to, to make these charges, but they're not here. They should have been here. Verse 20. And since they're not here, let these other guys speak up because the real issue is the resurrection of Jesus. I had a friend give me a book recently on the difference between Christianity and Islam. The difference? The resurrection. Islam denies the resurrection. So I got on line today. Actually, I pulled out a book in my library and I began to read uh, Islam denies the resurrection, Buddhism denies the resurrection, Shintoism denies the resurrection, on and on and on. The resurrection of Jesus is denied. The resurrection is the watershed event of human history that makes Christianity either true or false. And if it's true, then everybody else cannot be right. If it's true, there are not many ways up to the mountain that lead to God. There's only one way, and that way is through the Savior who came and gave his life on our behalf so we can have eternal life in him. Now, in our culture, in our world, in our society, in our nation, that's an intolerant statement. But it's true. And if it's true, if it's true, and I believe it is and I hope you do, then the reality of it is the resurrection has changed everything. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then really what we're doing here is wasting our time. But if he did rise from the dead, nothing else really matters. Are you living your life for the resurrected Savior? Do you know the Savior? Telling others of the Savior, inviting them to worship with you, inviting them to your small groups, inviting them to be part of your life so you can tell them about Jesus. The resurrection, as it did in Paul, was a dividing line. We will rise from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection divided people then. The resurrection divides people now. The resurrection divides eternity forever. Those who believe in Jesus and the resurrection accept him by faith for forgiveness of sins will enjoy his presence forever. Well, if you are a procrastinator, Felix is your hero. I mean, if you're a person who says, manana, 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 Felix is your hero. 
Uh, in verses 22 and 23, he procrastinates towards the Jews. Look at what he says. Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off. He said, when Lysus, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. He gave order to Centurion to keep Paul in custody, yet give him some freedom and not to prevent his friends from ministering. So Paul's under house arrest. So, so he says, I'll decide this case later. Later never came. Two years later, there's a new governor coming in. He hadn't done anything. So, so he puts the Jews off. He procrastinates with them. Then he procrastinates regarding the gospel. Look at verse 24. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul, and they heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. And he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Now, if the governor came to you, you've been falsely accused, you're thrown into prison, what would your first words be? Shows you the heart of the apostle. He's concerned about the lost governor standing before him. And so he says, he preaches to him about righteousness, self-control, and judgmental, being, ju- being judgment to come. But what does Felix do? He procrastinates. Go away for the present. I'll find time later and summon you. Then he procrastinates regarding Paul. He's hoping to get money from Paul. He talks to him quite often. After two years past, Felix succeeded by Festus, and he leaves Paul in prison, waiting, 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 waiting. Three truths about waiting, and then we'll quit. So I've been waiting for that for a while. Number one, seek God while you wait. Seek God while you wait. Lamentations 3.25 says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. See, some of you are in a waiting mode right now. When God says wait, don't fill your calendar and your clock with busyness. That's my tendency. God says, wait, I want to do something. God says, wait, I'm going to do everything I can to help him. (laughs) How foolish. When you're waiting, seek the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. You wait. You wait upon the Lord. You just wait for him to bring things about. I, I tend to be impatient. I'm like the little girl who went to a kindergarten class, came home at the end of the day. The dad said, well, how'd it go today? She said, uh, not too good. I've got to go back tomorrow. <laughs> waiting. When God brings a time of waiting, don't fill your calendar and your clock with busyness. Just wait. Secondly, as believers in Christ, we wait with hope. We don't wait in despair. We don't wait fretting. We don't wait worrying. We wait with hope. Scriptures say this in Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen waiting for the morning sun to come up. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I love that. I wait for the Lord. His word is my hope. When you wait, you wait with a certainty. Gary Thomas, the author, writes these words, waiting for the believer is not futile and desperate, a futile and desperate act of those who have no other options, but rather it's a confident trust that God will eventually set all things right. We wait knowing that our God is in control. We wait knowing that regardless of what happens among our leaders, among the nation and nations, God is in control. 
Psalm 21.1 is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. And it says this, it says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he channels it wherever he desires. My friends, things may look bleak and things may look bad, but our God is still in control, amen? And so we do not wait fretting and we do not wait worrying, we wait with a certain hope. We must not redefine God as one who cannot and will not intervene in our world. When God's hands are apparently still, we must not conclude that his hands are tied. He is the sovereign God of the universe. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Like rivers of waters, he channels it wherever he desires. We seek God while we wait. We wait with hope. And God honors those who wait upon him. The scriptures say this in Isaiah 64, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Those who wait on him. Some of you are wired like I am. Waiting is hard. Difficult. You don't like to wait. You don't want to wait. You wring your hands when you wait. You want to figure it out yourself. You want to do it yourself. You want activity. You want something to happen. But the scriptures tell us we wait for him. In Isaiah 40, we will gain strength when we wait for him. And we wait upon him. One author said this, second to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher in godliness we encounter. For some of you, my admonition this morning is you need to wait. You need to wait to leave that job. You need to wait to sell that house. You need to wait to leave your family. Wait to leave that small group. Wait to leave the church. Wait. You need to wait. For some of you, you need to wait to send that email. You need to wait to talk to your boss. You need to wait before you fire off that text to your kids. You need to wait before you talk to your spouse about whatever it is. You need to wait. For some of you, you're in the midst of waiting and it's hard. When I was writing out this manuscript, typing out this manuscript, <clears throat> I got a phone call from one of our men. I'm in the middle of this on Friday. And I typically don't take calls on Friday, but it's coming from the hospital. I said, Gary, would you pray for me? Yeah, sure. Well, I may have a recurrence of uh, cancer and they took a biopsy in the morning and I'm not going to get the results until later. I don't know if that means later today, probably not over the weekend, maybe Monday. Would you pray? Bro, you're not going to guess what I'm typing right now. Waiting on the Lord. Waiting. Sure, I'll pray with you. Let's pray. What about you? Waiting. The scriptures unfurling. The gospel is headed to the uttermost parts of the world, eventually even here. In the meantime, Paul waits. Sometimes God says, wait, trust me, and I'll honor you. Father, for some of us, it's so hard. So hard. We want it, and we want it now, whatever it might be. And I pray that we'll learn how to wait upon you. I pray that Christ will be our sufficiency in the midst of waiting. 
For some of you, the admonition is wait. Just sit before God, trust Him, and wait. For some of us, it's we're in the midst of activity and we need to stop. Because we're making decisions apart from Him and not waiting on Him. Father, each day is a gift you give us. Some of you have waited a long time. You've waited to trust Christ as your Savior. Would you stop waiting for that? Jesus gave his life so you might have life, eternal life for the forgiveness through the forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that this morning? Quit waiting for that. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here today. In Christ's name, amen. By the way, the computer was replaced, the hard drive was defective, the editor was understanding, and I got a great sermon illustration. <laughs> Bless you.